The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. My name's Mike Walker. I'm here with my good friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm quite well, Walker. How are you? The sun is the devil. Stay inside and play games. That is my message of the day. (laughs) We're back at it. And seeing as it's summer, we're going to change things up. First, we're going to talk about games we played, the news, and why it doesn't matter. Our feature game, which is Hyperborea and other bag-building games. And the topic of the week, which is rating systems and why they're so fantastic. So what did you play this week, Mark? I played Quantum. Quantum is a game by Eric Zimmerman uh, put out about five years ago. I was surprised it was five years ago because I associate Quantum as being more recent than that. It's a very fun, extremely light, almost kind of in the same vein as a 4X game, but not quite really. I mean, it's a space game where you're flying around and you get new powers but not really techs and you fight but you don't really expand and you don't really explore but anyway it's the same kind of idea space light space empire game with lots of combat the central conceit is that all your ships are dice and the movement rating is the number of pips available in the dice and when you fight you roll a die and add it to the ship's value but lower total wins so a ship of one only moves one space but is much stronger than any other ship and so on and so forth The other key hook is that each ship has a special power. Each numerical value of ship has a special power that you can use in addition to whatever normal actions you have. Anyway, so the game is a lot about pulling off combinations. I use my power of this ship, which then keys off of this other ship, which lets me do this thing, which lets me kill this thing. Quick game, lasts about 60 minutes. I always have a blast playing it. It's not the deepest thing in the world, but I really recommend it. It's quite fun, pretty on the table. And it had been a while since I played it, so I was very, very glad to once again play Quantum. Yeah, I definitely want to get back to it. I've only, unfortunately, only been able to play it once and want to play it again. It's a cute little game, isn't it? It is. I really like it. The game I want to talk about this week is Spheres of Influence. It's an older, not an older game as in Call to the New, not new. But, right. But it's a great twist on Risk if you want to, you know, call back to the old days where you're, you know, just dudes on a map, cubes pushing around, rolling dice. Spheres of Influence is for you does a neat little twist on the dice system where you like group up values of six has this great activation system where on the map there's strategically placed oil fields and every time you take an oil field you get to add another card to the activation system so at the beginning of the game everyone has two of these cards in this activation system you shuffle them up and flip them over and when your card comes up you get to either move and attack or do what you want to do and the more oil fields you have the more actions you get and it has this whole you know, special card system that's not too, too overpowering, but it's hard to get the cards and they have multi-purposes. So Spheres of Influence, great game. If you can find someone that has a copy, give it a try. 
Yeah, I've never played it. The, the oil field system does seem kind of interesting in that, correct me if I'm wrong, the oil field territories are less good than other territories in terms of your overall supply. Correct. I see. That element seems interesting. I'll, I'll probably give it a shot next time it hits the table. On the topic of uh, weird dudes on a map games, though, played Lords of Hellas again, which we talked about at length in a recent episode. We played this time by the correct rules with respect to uh, Walker's favorite action, which is called... Usurp. Indeed. Still weird, still strange, still didn't get used, still only used to threaten the end of the game. At any rate, I am still enjoying the game and I stand by everything we said. So Lords of Hellas is so far standing up well, even though it's only been a couple times. But I will say, rarely is it the case that after a sprint of playing a game many times in succession, so as to be able to review it, that I'm keen to return to it the same week after we review it. But Lords of Hellas was an exception, so I'm definitely still enjoying it, and everyone I've introduced it to has been at least moderately pleased with it. All right, I, we both got to the table Core World, and this never loses steam for me. Every time it comes to the table, I enjoy it just as much as the first time, and I'm looking forward to playing it again. It's a deck builder where you're building up your deck. You can either have it nice and balanced and go infantry and starfighters, or you can you know try to specialize one way or the other. Or robots, or, or capital robots, ships, or, capital or ships. heroes, yeah. or any manner well, of other things. True. And uh, you're taking over planets and building your deck up, and it's a just overall great game. We played with both expansions, and I love the one where you're, you know, every card, not every card, but uh, the, the ones you add to your deck after your initial deck, they all have these, you know, symbols where you can put in tokens in, like, the Brotherhood or Government, or and then you can use those tokens to give you special abilities or keep them in the, in the boxes for victory points at the end of the game. I think it's, a, you know, an essential part of the game. I agree. Core Worlds was designed by Andrew Parks, and everything that Andrew Parks has, been, has done has been at least interesting. I'm looking forward to trying his most recent game called Dungeon Alliance, which uh, many Andrew Parks games have problems, but at the very least, there's there's usually something cool going on in everything that he's done. And Core Worlds is very much one of the top-tier deck builders in that you have to make careful choices about how to play your hand, whereas in many deck builders, you just play everything you've got, and it's relatively straightforward, or there are no trade-offs involved. But in Core Worlds, you'd be very, very careful about what you do with your cards. But the base game, as you say, doesn't really have a whole lot of flexibility. If you're off by one energy, or one action, or one card, you can be completely boned and not really be able to do much of anything, which is why the first expansion in Galactic Orders is so good, because it allows you to cash in influence on these various places, so as to give you a little boost towards doing something a little extra. It's nothing overpowering, it's nothing crazy, it's not anything that someone's going to be able to pull something out, and, and you'd be completely blown away or, or taken taken by surprise. But it just gives you that extra little bit of flexibility, and this is something that I'll return back to when we talk about Hyperborea. I really like it when an expansion does that. The second expansion, Revolution, eh, doesn't really do much for me, honestly. Uh, the extra rules grit isn't significant, but the extra setup is, is a little tedious, so I'm a bit more ambivalent about that, and I wish Core Worlds were a little bit faster than it is, but with two... Or three people who really know the game, Core Worlds is great, and I sincerely recommend it. If you love deck builders and haven't really tried any of the uh, the you know the crunchier ones, then Core Worlds I think is a great introduction to what deck building can do past the simple Dominion Ascension or Realms model. True, but even though that that expansion didn't add decent rules additions, just more cards is always better, right? Sure, it doesn't add a whole heck of a lot of cards, but yeah, sure, more cards are fine. What else did you play this week? We played Ethnos. Ethnos is a game by Paolo Mori and put up by Simon last year. I've been interested very much like uh, Quantum. I've been interested in playing uh, uh, shorter, uh, simpler games in the past week. I've, I've been a little bit burned out on, on you know sprawling two-plus hours things, although we, we did some of that last week as well. 
And Ethnos is really simple and really quick. You play cards or you draw a card. That's what you do on your turn. It's basically a ticket to ride for gamers One way is, is one way I've seen it described. I've taught it to intro gamers with great success. It scales up to six, which is great. This is the, We played with three, and this is the first time I played with less than four. With four players, you play three eras, three full rounds of the game. With, with three players, you only play two rounds. And I thought that would be extremely strange and unsatisfying, but I was very surprised by how, how it still felt fine. It still felt like an average arc of a game. Uh, albeit somewhat truncated, and Ethnos is never spectacular, but it's always really solid and enjoyable and clean, and sometimes that's exactly what I'm in the mood for. It appears to be rather strangely out of print. It had a couple of very successful print runs, but I think they're in between that, and so stocks have run dry, Uh, and I certainly know that the promo tribe, the fairies, is very hard to get their hands on based on the increasingly uh, strident messages I get on BoardGameGeek with respect to my copy of, of the promo tribe, but... Ethnos is, a, is very, very good on, if on the lighter end of the spectrum. A little bit of area influence, a little bit of special powers, and just a very smooth playing experience. Well, from my limited understanding, that's like sort of the CMON MO, right? As soon as they have a game out, they usually have the one major print run, and then after that, it's who knows if you're going to get another copy, right? I suppose that's fair. You know, thinking back on their other non-Kickstarter things, because Ethnos was not launched by a Kickstarter, that does seem to be their standard practice, which is unfortunate. I mean, it's one of, I think, the most unfortunate corollaries of the Cult of the New. If you don't get a game very early on, you might not get a chance ever at all, which is a shame because sometimes you'd like to try a game before you buy it or wait to see what the critical consensus is, you know. But now it appears that it's a market for gamblers. But I got Ethnos on the strength of some very good critical recommendations and the fact that Paolo Mori is, I think, a very, very solid designer. And so it wasn't too much of a risk at the time, but... I love Ethnos. I do want to talk about a bit how you play it, too. It's it's all these different races, like you said, fairies, dwarves, uh, mermen, right? And your Merfolk, hashtag feminism. Cough. On your turn, <laughs> you're either drawing a card or playing a set. And the sets are either all of the same color or all of the same race. And when you play a set, you put down tokens on this map. And the maps are going to be, at the end of a round, worth a certain amount of points, whoever has the most tokens in it. And you have to have, your set has to be larger than the number of tokens you already have in the territory. And that's it, that's why it works so well. That is one of the elements, though, that I find not necessarily unsatisfying, but kind of unintuitive. So there's actually two broad ways to score points. You can score points by having area and majorities on the map. And you score points based on the size of the sets that you've played. And regardless of the player count, I have found that many people underestimate the importance of the, the, the set scoring. And they overemphasize the importance of the area majority scoring. So they can be very, very, very hard for a pool of points that can be taken away from you. That where you're in direct competition with other players that might be divvied up amongst various people. But if you play a set of of dudes, you're guaranteed those points at the end of the game. There's very little anyone can do about it, and so, in many cases, there's nothing they can do about it. And in, especially in larger player games, the the person who's most successful is often just sitting in the corner and just playing out their huge sets, which is fine. It's just a little. Uh, generally speaking, we have this bias as gamers wherever the most wherever the biggest components are we assume that's where most of the action is and so it's weird that sometimes you know 60 or more percent of the scoring at the end of the game had nothing to do with the board and all the plastic pieces instead it was just the cards in front of somebody but that is that's just more about not higher level play but just understanding where the points are going to come from if you want to play competitively guaranteed points exactly and sometimes just 
large quantities. So that's more about internalizing where the points are coming from rather than a fault of the game, but it is it is a mistake or at least a misapprehension that I see a lot of players making, and it's certainly one that I make all the time. All right, that is Ethnos from Simon. The next game that Mark and I played together, I always have to force him to play, and it's hard to get it to the table. It's called Sacker Arms. Now, it's a great combat game where you're taking two different fighters that have two different, very different combat skills, and you merge their decks together. You get to create the deck, draw cards from their different decks to create one deck, and then you're fighting for distance between each other because, you know, your opponent's deck does maximum damage at short range where yours is long range, and getting your combos off and managing your hand because you're going to take damage every time you have to reshuffle. It's just that every time I play it, I'm finding different parts of the game that I'm enjoying, and I really need to get it to the table more. I'm going to have to strongly disagree with Walker on one thing. He doesn't have to force me to get it to the table. He just has to remember in his thick head how to play the game, which every time we play the game, he has to relearn, which which to a certain extent is not Walker's fault. And let, let this go down in the calendar is one of those instances where I say that because some of the terminology is deliberately weird. Like they, when they did the translation, they claim, I, don't, I haven't looked at the original Japanese, but when they did the translation of some of the terminology in Sakura Arms, they claimed that they decided to go for a very literal translation as, to, as opposed to a more functional translation. And anyone who's dealt with texts in foreign languages before knows that generally speaking, literal translations are not the best, broadly speaking. Anyhow, but setting that aside, yes, Sacro Arms is great, it's cheap, it's accessible, but very, very deep, and you learn things every time you play, you learn things during a single play, it has lovely moments of surprise and drama, it seems like they're not going to print any expansions, which is a bit of a shame, because there are more, uh, well, they're called Megami, but anyway, there are more characters that have been released in Japan, apparently there's an active tournament scene in Japan. If you like two-player card battling games, which is a very, very distinct little genre and something that I enjoy, but I don't get to play often enough, then Sakura Arms is absolutely a winner. Got to play Empire's Age of Discovery. So this is the reprint of what was originally called Age of Empires 3. So originally it had that uh, video game tie-in. I've never played any of the Age of Empires PC games. I don't really like real-time strategy. Empires Age of Discovery is a worker placement game with some area majority elements. And one of the classic problems with worker placement games is often the only competition you have is about denying other people's spaces. And there's tons of that in Empires Age of Discovery, but on top of that, there's also this area majority element. And so because of the fact that there's this increased level of player interaction and then there's this other level of what to do with your workers about, you know, the standard worker placement stuff about gathering resources and other kinds of things, but also about sending them to the new world where... Some workers behave differently than other workers because there's this added level of specialists. You know, merchants are good at making money and getting you trade goods and all manner of other things. Ever since the original version, I've really liked Age of Discovery. And it's probably one of my favorite, very favorite worker placement games. I had the original edition liked it. Now I have the newer edition because it has the uh, expansion builders integrated into it. I will say, despite the fact that I think it's a top-tier worker placement game, the balance is not the best. Some of the national powers and some of the buildings and some of the other things aren't necessarily what I would say are, you know, intuitively the the best balance against each other. But despite that, I still really enjoy it. As far as worker placement games go, I think it's absolutely one of the the best and something that I will play pretty much any time. So I was very glad to once again get to play Empire's Age of Discovery. It's fantastic. Not only are your workers different, but sometimes in all the different areas that you can place them, they'll do something different. And then when the action resolves for that area, when they go to the new world, they also have yet another ability that they get to do. It's, It's a fantastic game. I was also shocked, and this is this is kind of a, a parenthetical, and this is, again, under the aegis of it, I wanted to play games that were a little bit more streamlined. 
the rules explanation doesn't take very long. It's a game that's relatively deep and relatively involved, and it's it's definitely not short. But every time I explain how to play Empire Age of Discovery, I'm sh- when I'm done, I'm shocked. It's like, wait, that's it? There's not you know five different sub mechanisms in it, and yeah remembering how the different specialists work is not always the most straightforward thing, and people have to ask, wait, how does this work again, and and, and so forth. So there, there's a little bit of intricate bits. But in terms of the core systems, it's very, very simple, like many worker placement games are. You put out all your workers, here's what all the action space is done, boom, let's play the game. So I, I love me some Empire's Age of Discovery. I'm glad it was reprinted in a slightly more uh, omnibus edition. Big fan of Empire's Age of Discovery. It's a shame that Glenn Drover, the guy who who designed Age of Discovery, he also designed Railways of the World. Uh, he hasn't really done anything since that that I've I've really liked. It, it all seems a bit too wonky. It looked like for for a little bit he had a couple of successes under his belt, and it looked like he was going to become a, a top tier designer. But I haven't. His his more recent stuff seems to have been all you know kind of a mess. Which is a bit unfortunate. I, I keep looking at every every new game that he publishes, and usually there are a couple of big red warning signs uh, to keep me away. But I will still uh, I will still keep pulling out Age of Discovery. That's for sure. So we got too many bones to the table again, and apparently we had played it three before, but I didn't remember. I thought we only had played two players, and so I thought this was our first three player experience with it. And it's another sort of dungeon delving. Co-op fantasy adventure. Co-op fantasy adventure. But the differences in the characters are so great is what makes this game so amazing. Like, they have a completely different way they combo, a totally different set of dice, a totally different way how you manipulate those dice and how you get those dice. It can be seen both as a barrier to playing, but overall, I think, makes the game that much better to play. The asymmetry is indeed so huge. And one of the things that, and as you say, it's a bless- both a blessing and a curse. If you sit someone down, and even if they played a lot, and they remember the core rules backwards and forwards, if they're playing a new character, you have to teach them the game all over again. Because every character has their own little sub-mechanisms and, and, and weirdnesses. Even even the very, very straightforward ones are a bit bizarre. Now, while this die works in conjunction with this die, and you need this thing in this slot, and then it activates this other slot, and then during your turn, you do this thing. There's a lot going on in the asymmetry. I think I agree with you. The asymmetry really sells the game. Without that level of character asymmetry, I don't think that too many bones would hold interest. I will say, though, that with three, you're right, we, we played it now twice with three. All the rest of my playings, of which there's been well over a dozen, have been either solo or, or with two players. I don't think three is my preferred level. I wouldn't ever play it with four. I never have. I don't think I ever will. It just gets too long, and the difficulty shoots up too quickly. Which is not to say that it's too hard. I think that the difficulty level is fine. It's just that you don't spend any time bashing weaklings upside the head. So you just have to be in a position where you're all weaklings, but you're fighting something really powerful. And you just shoot up to those high-level monsters really quick. And you don't really get a chance to breathe. And there's no real sense of... it, It kind of saps, I think, the overall arc of the game. And... The game just takes too long. It's a very long game. Yeah, and that completely seg- segues in. I wasn't going to talk about this game, but it just segues in so perfectly as we played uh, City of Kings again. And it was almost exactly the same problem we played with three, where we usually play with two. And the difficulty ramped so quickly that it, it, it didn't make for a pleasant playing experience. Yeah, I like it when you're able to spend a little bit of time, you know, poking rats with sticks before you're fighting the massive giant boss. And that also leads into what I wanted to say at the end of this, is that it seems as though we're always pushing to decrease the numbers. But there are two games that we talked about, which is Spheres of Influence. I would play with, it goes up to eight, and I would, I'd like to play with eight. It would be rough at eight, but I would definitely would want to, wouldn't play it without 
five or six players. Yeah, for you sure. must have played at six. I think. Yeah, six, five or six is key. And Ethnos, same thing. I would five six is is the optimum level. So I want to make sure that it doesn't sound like we're like bashing all games down to you know a two player or three player experience. Good point. Now onto the news and why it doesn't matter. Starcadia Quest by Simon. <laughs> There will be a Acadia Quest in space. Well, well, you know, you have fantasy zombies, why, and, and suddenly they're gone to space. Why not send, you know, the Acadia crew out to space as well? You know, if you're making millions of dollars sending people <laughs> to space, why not send your whole line to space? Maybe it'll be Ethnos in space next. Who knows? So that's it for, yeah, that's all I got for Starcadia Quest. Well, it'll certainly be no Starship Samurai. Exactly. What, what do you think of Arcadia Quest? Have you played it? played one i never remember which ones they are there's the two right there's arcadia quest and there's what's the other chibi super dungeon explorer super dungeon explorer i think it was arcadia quest i played because super dungeon explorer is 1v all it's basically descent ish and then there's arcadia quest which is competitive no overlord the monsters just sit there and wait to be killed i think it was arcadia quest okay i wanted to like arcadia quest you know it's cute i like the components i'm generally predisposed towards even Cooling or not, it's dumb stuff, but it really leans on one of the things that I hate most in games, which is last hit getting all the credit for the kill. And Arcadia Quest is more or less entirely designed around that. And uh, there wasn't much interesting going on past that, so it really didn't grab me. And I, I normally, I'm, I'm look, I'm in favor of sending anything into space. I, I prefer sci-fi themes to fantasy themes nine times out of ten, but uh, Arcadia Quest doesn't hold any interest to me. So speaking of space. Clank in Space expansion has been announced called Apocalypse. So that's good. I thought maybe Clank in Space would be just like a one and done type thing and there will be like just focusing on the original Clank Dungeon thing, but no. So that's good because I prefer Clank in Space over the the regular Clank. So that's great news. Cosmic Encounter is going to get a 42nd anniversary edition. 42, of course, being the optimum number for such things. 42 is already referenced a couple times in some of the uh, the racial powers in Cosmic Encounter, at least the Fantasy Flight version. I'm of two minds about this, as per usual. They're not going to get any more money from me out of me at this time because they're so they're redoing the base game. Some of the components are going to be upgraded and or changed. There's going to be a new alien power in the 42nd anniversary edition. One thing that they're introducing that I really would like to have, though, well, I'd obviously like to have the extra alien power, is they have these cards for recommended alien groupings. Because one of my big problems with Cosmic Encounter, I haven't had a whole lot of time to talk about Cosmic Encounter on the show, largely because Walker, number one, hates it, and number two, can never remember what it's called. Well, that's what I mean. Like, I, when I do the news, I look for things that would interest me, and I saw this, and that would be why it's not on my list. You find Starcadia Quest more interesting than Cosmic Encounter? Exactly. See, I, I, now I'm glad you see where I'm coming from. Wow. Even people who hate Cosmic Encounter ought to at least be able to appreciate <laughs> the level of Philistinism that I'm dealing with here. Well, the one when I did see the news thing on it, the one thing I was wondering was the pieces are different. They'll be translucent instead yes. of spherical plastic. Does that mean you could use those not as those colors and as just more players? So you could have like solid color players and translucent and just add more players to the game like i don't like i said i've only you, played it a few times you so can no all idea. with the expansions you can already go to eight past that you start running into deck problems the composition of the deck gets wonky you need those extra cards gotcha with the contents of just the base game you can play up to six with respect to the deck you but if do, you had, but if you had the solid pieces and the translucent ones then you'd have two decks could you not just maybe I don't know. That's the only thought yeah. I had when no, I saw and, it. And I will say, look, this is turning into a mini section on Cosmic Encounter, which is fine. The With teams, 
you can go up to higher numbers relatively well with two, with two player teams. It's not the best configuration. I'd still rather play with around six ish. Again, like like you said with uh, spheres of influence, around six ish I think is the best. But with teams, the the, the downtime is is relatively minimal, and it's a negotiation game anyway. So everyone's always involved in everything. It's just you need to keep the pace going. You need someone driving the uh, the the game forward. But anyhow, the one the one component in the forty second anniversary edition that I would like is these recommended setups with aliens because one of the ways in which cosmic encounter can fall apart and make no mistake the game can fall apart in lots of different ways is sometimes some alien combinations are just unfun for example you might have an alien power that that works in a very specific way but somebody else has an alien power that makes your power either completely irrelevant or almost impossible to employ or is just by virtue of the, the the composition of the game their power is just like yours but better and that's not that's not cool and so I, I frequently wished that in a lot of these other spin-off games, like the Dune game or the, the the version that was done Rex, or the Game of Thrones version, I was often hoping that that would be sort of like a curated cosmic encounter experience with perfectly calibrated powers for each other. And it turned out to be largely disappointing to me. I still prefer cosmic, but you know I, I would like those uh, those setup cards available. Uh, I'm sure someone will scan them and 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 make them available. So anyway, Cosmic Encounter is going to get a 42nd anniversary edition. Just goes to show you how well some of the great classics of our hobby have aged. At least as far as I'm concerned, Walker's giving me a funny look, but then again, he has no good taste. I look at it this way. At least Fantasy Flight is not publishing a new edition that obsoletes the old one. This is not. This is complementary to the older edition, not obsoleting it, unlike practically every other property they've ever managed. Do the expansions that are with the current Cosmic Encounter, do they have any new pieces for the original colors, or do they just add new colors? They just add new colors. All right, so... With, it, with one exception, there was one expansion that introduced a sort of disc that you could put on top of a ship to make it a special ship that would do various things based on the, on the game mode, and that introduced the discs for all the past released colors as well as the, the gotcha. current ones. So that expansion will not work with this new edition. No, it'll work fine. It's just But I mean the color will be off because these are translucent in these You ones. can't make translucent cardboard anyway. Oh, it's cardboard counters. Oh, yeah, sorry. it's a, car- thought, it's a cardboard counter. Sorry, sorry, sorry it's plastic. No, 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 it's not plastic. My mistake. The last bit of news about a game that we haven't even been able to try yet, unfortunately. And it was in a German competition for the best rule book called Azul. Apparently it did very well. Azul. Azul. Oh, come on. So it's going to have a giant edition. Of oh yeah, Azul. I saw that. <laughs> for a mere Repentance of $300, you too can have a giant Azul game. <laughs> I thought it was neat. When I first, I didn't see the price at first. I said, oh, this is great. I haven't got my copy of Azul yet. I'll, you know, let's look this up and see. Maybe I'll just get this one instead. And $300, maybe not. I think I'll have to play it first before I it, make that kind of commitment. It reminds me very much of some of the giant editions of Flick'em Up. Pretzel Games releases giant editions of some of their stuff, and they look very, very cool. And, you know, as one would expect, they are grotesquely expensive because as you increase the dimensions, the volume, mass, and the cost of the components increases exponentially, not arithmetically. So it is indeed understandable that they're very, very expensive and with small print runs and such. But yeah, they are very visually impressive. And it's important to note that based on how Walker pronounces it, he, he clearly must think that this is a game about the Ghostbusters dog creatures. So That's, that's right. <laughs> Yes, that, there's no Dana. They, there's they, only they live. They they live in the refrigerator. I'm always to this day scared to open the refrigerator door. Yeah. A quick bit of swag news, and it's almost over. You won't have to hear about it anymore because as of the first of June, we'll be drawing the random person for the Massive Darkness Lightbringer Pledge with the 
Black Plague Zombicide crossover kit as well. Draw it the first and we'll tell you that name next episode and then you won't have to hear about it anymore before instructions uh, please go consult episode 25 we'll tell you about how to do it there and it's also on our facebook page and in our guild on board game geek now on to our feature game which this week is hyperborea by andrea caris vesio and perluca zizzi and what company puts that out well, it was put up by Asterion. It was uh, distributed by Asmodee, and that was one of the that was back when Asmodee was actually Asmodee, rather than you know the world destroying, universe swallowing Asmodee that we know of now. So, how does this fall into our chronological map of board games? Well, I was actually quite surprised. So, looking this up, I had always assumed that Orléans came out. And then Hyperborea followed a couple of years after, a year or two or something. But no, they were both released in the same year, namely 2014. And this surprises me because, I'm sure Walker will disagree with me here, I find Hyperborea to be, in terms of how it manages the bag-building central mechanism, to be vastly more polished and sophisticated than the way that Orléans handles it. And so I'd assume that this was sort of an iterative evolution, but no, they were, they were clearly designed in, in, in parallel without much cross-pollination. What are we talking about when I'm talking about bag builders? So there are deck builders where you buy cards and they go into a deck and you shuffle it and you draw a hand of cards and do something with them. Bag builders instead tend to have either colored cubes or colored discs that you draw at random and you use those things to power various other actions that you have. So in and of themselves, they do nothing. They're not like a card that you play and they do some various things. You instead generate, you look at your board and say, well, I've got a blue and two yellow. And you look to see what kind of, for lack of a better term, recipes you can satisfy with those things. Now, that is just a central way to drive the action mechanism. So in and of itself, it's, it's you know, no more illustrative of what a game is like than just saying it's an auction game or it is a drafting game. So all of these games that we're going to be talking about here, and we're going to be comparing Hyperborea with Orléans and I think to, by extension Altiplano, which I think it's fair to say are the three most prominent bag-building games on the market currently. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a fair amount of overlap, even though what you're doing with this, the, the central action generation might be somewhat different, but, but superficially they, they, they share a lot in common. So why don't you spend a little bit of time, Walker, in your inimical way, telling us what one does in Hyperborea. So in Hyperborea, you're trying to maximize your actions. You're keeping a tally on the number of cubes and the type of cubes you have in your bag, because you only get to draw three a turn. And if you only have one or two cubes in your bag, well, then at the end, then that's all you get to draw. And you're trying to create this engine, and you want the proper cubes to support that engine. There's also technology cards on the side that you can add to your engine that will take more cubes. So you want to make sure you, you know, you're buying technologies that work within the cubes in your bag. And then you're playing a certain number of turns. Whoever, there's, there's victory conditions out on the board, three different ones. And when two different of those victory conditions are met, the game will end. Actually, it's flexible. You can set how many you want. It's either one, two, or three. Oh, well, then you'll set the victory conditions, and when the when that victory condition is met, whoever has the most victory points is the winner. So one of the things that I like about bag builder games is that it offers you more flexibility as compared to deck builders, because as Walker said, not only is it the case that you're adding cubes to your bag, if you want to heavily invest in technologies, for example, you get lots of blue cubes. If you want to heavily invest in trade, you get yellow. If you want to heavily invest in development, you get orange, etc., etc. But you're also able to buy these technology cards that are off to the side. And that is one of the key ways in which you evolve your engine on that element. So the fuel that comes into your engine and the outputs that it produces are both under your control to a certain extent and involve. And some of them are really neat. 
And although none of them are particularly, you know, shocking or exciting, you don't see huge asymmetry in terms of what the technologies produce. There's a relatively core set of effects that you can generate. You do end up specializing to a certain degree and being slightly more flexible in one area or another as the game goes on. And that, that ability to evolve with a little bit more detail than deck builders is something I really appreciate. Yeah, the one thing I didn't mention, you have to maximize your efficiency of the board. I didn't mention the whole map element. Every territory has an, almost every territory has an ability that you can throw one of your men in, and it also produces the same sort of effect of an action that you get from your player board. People walker, hashtag feminism. Hashtag cough. So it's yet another element to this game, much like Orleans has the map where, unfortunately, it's just for more victory points in Orleans, but in, in Hyperborea, it's a whole other element because the territories are going to be worth victory points at the end of the game. They're also giving you actions, and there's also it's also another whole way more evident of player interaction than it is in Orleans. Orleans, it's simply, I've put my trading house here before you, too bad, or I've taken this good before you did, too bad this, there's actually fighting, because some of the actions generate swords, and uh, you can kill the guys out of the out of the action that each territory provides and take it yourself, and then like I said, it's a it's a area control game for the end victory condition. I talked before about how when a game introduces slightly more flexibility in terms of being able to plan your actions, then I'm very much in favor of it. And Hyperborea does that precisely because basically once through your deck, once per reshuffle, as it were, you can trigger some ability on the map. And so this gives you an impetus to expand. This gives you an impetus to bump up against uh, your opponents. And this also gives you an impetus to be able to exploit these these additional elements of flexibility at opportune times. And so this not only increases your ability to plan and be reactive uh, uh, simultaneously, it also encourages more player interaction, which as you said, and I think we'll spend a little bit more time talking about this later, it really does help the game feel much more interactive than not only just other deck builder or, or engine builder games like this, but than the other bag builder games like Orléans or Altiplano, precisely because there's not a huge amount of combat. This this is not a dudes on a map game, even though it sometimes looks like it does. It is, but it's really not. It's more a question of, I, I would put it more in the vein of El Grande in that it's more about a slowly evolving area majority contest. But in addition to the end game points for sitting on these territories, it's also about being able to exploit these actions on the board. It's definitely something that you cannot just let go. You can't just ignore it and go with a different engine. If you just let other players take over that whole map, then you're going to definitely lose out. Yeah, you can definitely choose to exploit the map in different ways, but you cannot choose to ignore the map. That is absolutely true. I will note, just as a, as a, as a side thing before I forget, that Hyperborea, very much like Kemet does, has a hilarious little bit of localization, let's say mistranslation. There are two ways to play the game. There's the invasion mode, which where, you, where nobody plays with any special powers at the start of the game. And then there's the version where every faction starts with their own special power, which is called the race war version. And to North American audiences, race war means something very particular and very unpleasant. So it's v roughly evocative of Kemet's white power tiles, which is somewhat unfortunate. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not imputing anything deliberate or malicious on the part of the Italian designers or the French publishers. I'm merely pointing out that sometimes localization is a tricky business. Exactly. The choice of words. And like 
other games. This has the great sub-moral game at the end. Whoever actually has the coolest animals, because I want to talk about the awesome art Absolutely. on these cards. Whoever has the coolest animals on their on their technology cards is actually the real winner, because there's everything from horned raptors to giant horned muskox pulling yaks. Flying manta rays. Flying manta rays, hovering ships, all sorts of... The art on the cards is fantastic. I love the art for Hyperborea. This this is one of the this is one of those areas in which I think Hyperborea is sometimes a victim of its own quality because the game kind of looks like a dudes on a map game. It's got little plastic army pieces that you move around a map and you can fight, but it's not a dudes on a map game. It's got all these very very cool bits of fantasy artwork on these cards, but at the end of the day, it is very much an engine building efficiency game. It's a very sort of procedural. Uh, somewhat plodding in pace Euro game. And it is not a sort of epic fantasy adventure empire builder like you might see in a game like Rune Wars or even games where you run around and smack people upside the head. And so one of the ways in which people are often disappointed by Hyperborea, I found personally, and this is definitely evocative of what I've read on Board Game Geek, is they were expecting something different. They see the box, they see the art, they're expecting something like Fantasy Flight would put out. And that's reasonable. That is definitely what a lot of the product is communicating, but that is not how the game feels. It does have a lot of elements of player interaction, and it does have a lot of areas of direct competition, and it is very, very nice to look at the art. But the game is very much, again, in the tradition of something like Orléans or Altiplano, where it's about resource conversion and it's about being, building an efficient engine. So sometimes there's a bit of cognitive dissonance and sort of uh, people expecting something different. All right, I want to segue with that, because with the, with the art on the box and the art on the cards and the, and the guys on the map, that's where all the theme comes from. But unlike uh, unlike Orleans, the actual cubes in your bag, I feel that's where it actually falls short because they're fairly meaningless. They're just ways to drive your engine. Whereas in Orleans, you're you need to go down the road, so you have to hire the soldier, you have to you know get the bureaucrat, and you're sending the guy down the road. Or if you're going to the scholar, like all of these things you're hiring, it makes sense for all these actions. In Hyperborea, it's all just colored cubes. Yeah, believe it or not. It is actually the case that I think Orléans has slightly better thematic integration than Hyperborea does, which is bizarre because Orléans is not especially thematic, but all of your all the all the resources in your bag are roughly thematically evocative. It's like this is my scholar, my scholar can do various things that a scholar might be expected to do, although it must be noted in real life scholars are amazing at everything they do and are particularly attractive to members of opposite or the same sex. But in Hyperborea, they're as you say, they're just these colored cubes. There's not even any effort in the rulebook to explain what these cubes are. Are they workers? Are they people? Are no, they there things? is, there is. I went today to look just to make sure that I didn't lose it. They do have there is one line that tells you what they're all it's like science or culture. Yeah, you know, or, that's what they're good for, oh, right? Oh. But there's no specific references to specifically what the cubes are meant to represent specifically. Is this general specialization of your empire? Like, if you've, if you've got more blue cubes in your empire than anybody else, does that mean you have more scholars? Does that mean you have more universities? Does that mean you have more focus on scholarship? More fo- Anyway, this is not a huge problem, obviously, because I still, I you know, I love Hyperborea and will play it at pretty much any opportunity, but in terms of the thematic integration, it's all surface level. It's all window dressing. It's got great window dressing, but that's all that it's got in terms of uh, a thematic evocation. Yeah, when I'm going down my list of things that I didn't like about Hyperborea, it's all about this cubes because it has this whole chart. So how you get, how you build your bag is putting more cubes in your bag, and it's mostly... You have this chart of six different colors, and you're going to be sliding these counters up. There's actions you can take that move these counters up about eight spaces, and if you move them, you know, part the way up, you can cash it in to get one cube into your bag, or you can move it all the way to the beginning, all the way to the end, I should say, and get 
two cubes in your bag. Whereas all these other bag builders we're talking about, you do this action, you get to add to your bag instantly. This, you're going through a whole other mechanism just to add cubes to your bag. Where I really feel that was sort of like a lost part of the game where they could have had other things triggering off of this chart. Like if you're, you know, if you don't cash that in quite yet, you have markers in this tech, in this particular part higher, then you're going to get an extra, you know I mean? You get advantages for having your marker up on these charts, but in case it's just a convoluted way to get more cubes in your bag, but that's, it's very like, I'm going deep into this, but it's really not that big a deal. It's just sliding these things up to get more cubes in your bag. At the end of the day, it's, it's fine. Well, it relate it relates to something you mentioned before, and this I agree is one of the weakest elements of Hyperborea. If at the end of your turn your bag is empty, you perform a reset and then draw three cubes. In a reset, you just basically clear all your technologies so you can use them again, and your, your, your dudes move out of cities so you can use cities again later on, whatever. But if you have one or two cubes left in your bag, you, your next turn is just going to be inefficient. You're only going to have one or two cubes available. So basically what you want, at the end of your turn, you always want there to be three or more cubes or zero cubes. One or two is a mistake. So a lot of the game can be jockeying about manipulating the precise quantity of cubes you have left in your bag. And that's why you can cash in and get more cubes at a time of your choice. It's not particularly satisfying. It's certainly not thematically evocative of anything at all. And sometimes it's a little bit tedious. And it's certainly not fun to have made the mistake and have only one cube on your turn. There's not a whole lot of downtime, so it's not like you're going to have to sit there waiting forever for your turn to come back. It's just not one of the better elements of the game. And just, I just w- would like to stress, we've talked about house rules before in, in, on this podcast. In Hyperborea, I will now never again play without one house rule. And that is, in the rulebook, it specifically says you're not allowed to look at what cubes you have in your bag. But that's just rewarding the memory of what breakdown you have. So then if I'm sitting down there thinking, wait, have I do I already have two blue cubes in my bag or do I only have one? Because sometimes you get to choose what kind of cube you get to add to your bag. And you can look down at your, your tableau and say, okay, I only have the technologies to use two blue cubes. So you definitely want two, but you don't want a third. A third's not going to do you many favors. You know, you can still use it, but it's not great. And so according to the rules as written, you just have to try to guess. I don't think that's particularly necessary. It doesn't add much downtime at all to just simply say, you can look at your bag whenever you want. When you pull, you pull blindly because they're just cubes in a bag. But if you just need to peek inside to see how many blue cubes you have or whatever, go ahead and do it. So, I mean, that's a, that's a house rule that I thoroughly, highly recommend to anybody unless you play with people with analysis paralysis, in which case the proper recourse is not so much to avoid playing with this house rule, but rather to load a firearm, drag them out to the backyard and shoot them. But It's so true. To go a little bit deeper into that, no matter what you do in Hyperborea, you're only drawing three cubes. There's a few actions that will say draw more cubes from your bag, but as a core, you're drawing three at the end of your turn to prepare for next turn so you can sort of figure out what you're going to be doing. Unlike Altiplano and Orleans, where there's a specific action that's going to increase the number of discs that you're going to be drawing from your bag. So this just let's say this goes into another thing I was going to talk about. I wish I could take the best parts from all three. Like Hyperborea, I'd want their buildings... In Hyperborea, there's four different decks of buildings, and you're only going to have two from each. That'll be eight buildings present. Unlike Orleans, where there's a deck of, like, 20, and they're all massively overpowered, much like, you know, uh, Blood Rage, where there's so many overpowered buildings, it doesn't matter. Orleans, they have so many overpowered buildings, it doesn't matter because they're all overpowered, but it really rewards people that have played before. Whereas it, and it front loads all your decisions. For sure. The, the first building you build, the first decision you make about that is the most difficult one. Whereas in Hyperborea, you have a little bit of chance to breathe and figure out how the game is going before you start really committing to an overall strategy. 
Well, since you put that in, we'll do a quick side note before I continue on this. That's one thing I was wondering. I'm not sure if I like it or dislike it. When you play Orleans, you can say, I'm going to try this strategy beforehand. And it's not overly likely someone can stop you from doing that. In Hyperborea, you cannot really do that because you sort of have to go with the flow. You're not sure which technologies are going to come up. You're not sure how the map, because of the map is also random. I'm not sure if that's good or bad, but that is, it is a thing. You're right. The only thing that you can do in Hyperborea, which is a little bit along those lines, is you can play to your faction's strengths when you are playing the Race War version. Exactly. So like going on, I'd like to do, I wish the there was some sort of... Uh, expansion rule or something to cut down the the buildings or leans we were talking i was talking to someone yeah. about it today and then uh, i would take the bag drawing from Altiplano, where you empty out your whole bag if you can't draw then you dump everything back in and then you draw again that is one of the things about orleans that makes no sense to me and this again is one of the reasons why i think that i thought that orleans was released first and then hyperborea looked at it and said yeah we can improve on that formula which is in Orléans, every round it's a new draw from your, your your all your available pool. It's like you shuffle your deck after every hand of a of a deck builder. It's absurd. Yeah, there could be some discs that you wouldn't see, like technically, yeah, not likely, but right. there are some discs that you might not see for the whole game, which really undercuts the ability to pl- to do forward planning. In Hyperborea, you know that you're gonna, and in Altiplano as well, they work the same way. In this instance, you know you're gonna go through the entirety of your bag or the entirety of your deck at some point, so you can go halfway towards satisfying an action line, knowing full well that it can sit there and wait until the other half comes out. Well, the arguments can be made you can do that in Orleans, too. You can put out discs in order to you yeah. know, weaken your bag down so you can get all the discs Sure, in. yeah, you're still allowed to go and park on half of an action line, but again, you don't know when or if that other half is going to come out. 100%. What was the third thing I had? Oh, it'd be, it would be just the, the theme that you get from Orleans, the fact that, you know, what your cubes or discs mean something, it all makes sense and as you get them. And the fact that uh, Orleans has a solo uh, co-op mode is yep. amazing as well. The, the solo mode in Orleans is, it, it, it's weird. On the one hand, it's not particularly earth-shattering, but it's at least the case that people have gone in and done the playtesting required to calibrate the necessary challenges and, and know how it works. The same could be done to an overwhelming number of Euro games. Like, you could make the same kind of solo mode for a game of Hyperborea. You would just need someone to go and do the work to figure out what the appropriate costs are, what the appropriate challenges are. Uh, so, on the one hand, it's not particularly earth-shattering, but on the other hand, it's it's very, very good work, and I'm glad that it was done. I agree with you that I wish that some of the some of the innovations could be ported in and you could have the best of all possible worlds. But honestly, when it comes to the gameplay elements, when it comes to things like player interaction, the right level of flexibility, the right level of forward planning, the right level of special powers, the right level of customizability, Hyperborea for me wins hands down. And you're right that Orléans is more thematic. But at the end of the day, I'm quite happy to look down at my tableau of raptors and giant mastodons and think about, you know, how my empire is feeding them or what happened you and so i'm very glad that hyperborea works the way that it does i mean altiplano is nice but i just find it a little bit much to do about nothing it even has less of a map element than orleans did in a way it's a step backwards because in orleans you were using discs to get more discs and then getting goods to get points whereas in altiplano you are using goods to get more goods and the goods are worth points so it's just this one track basically where you're just climbing up this ladder where you're just you know constantly getting these incremental point bonuses and it's and it's overlong yeah so. exactly that's what the, i'll just say what i said again before if you felt as though orleans was too complicated and had too much player interaction which it has none then go with altiplano because yeah. it has zero really zero player interaction yeah effectively none much easier streamlined rules 
but goes on for way too long. Well, it's a simpler rule set, but it is very... It, it, it's harder to play well, which is an advantage. I mean, I, I did get the solid impression that Altiplano is slightly deeper in terms of the decision space, but that's mostly in the sense that, you know, you're halfway through a two-hour game and you look back and say, wow, I really screwed up the first five minutes, so I'm behind the curve and I will never recover, which is not exactly the best way to do things. I am willing to forgive that in games like Splatter Games because Splatter Games tend to be a little bit more epic in scope. They tend to have a much so- more solid sense of geography and tend to be much more novel. In, uh, in Altiplano didn't really cut it in that sense. Would you like to talk about the Hyperborea expansion? I do. I want to talk about the, just the, like I usually do, do you think that this expansion was introduced in order to fix problems? No. I.e., because in this expansion, they introduced uh, these black and white cubes. I, don't, I think that's, I don't know the expansion very much. I think it just added more racial powers and the black and white cubes, what else, what am I missing? More technologies, more... No, no more cards, actually. It introduced new endgame conditions, which I think are borderline stupid in some instances. Uh, I talked before about how I don't like last hits. One of the endgame conditions introduced in the expansion is indeed a last hit mechanism. Whoever kills the last ghost gets it, which is absurd. So if I'm sitting on a space with a ghost, and you're sitting on a space with a ghost, you're just going to be staring at each other, waiting for someone else to kill the second to last ghost, and then... You know, there's this big rush, but it, so it's kind of silly. Anyway, it also introduces relics, which are this new element of the board. In addition to ruins and cities, now there are these relics. The relics are fine, but they introduce an extra level level of rules grit. Mostly what I like are the new racial powers and the black and white cubes. The black and white cubes basically give you more flexibility. It's just like I said when I was talking about Galactic Orders in Core Worlds. In Hyperborea, you already have a certain degree of flexibility, but now what you can do is you can toss into your bag black and white cubes, and black cubes can work as a cube of any color, except the any color spaces. So, you know, there are rainbow spaces which will accept a cube of any color, but black cubes can't go there, but a black cube could sub for a green cube, or a red cube, or an orange cube somewhere else. White cubes are the other way around. They can't go on any colored space, but they can go on the rainbow spaces, and when they do, they generate a cube for you. So it kind of can snowball into getting more and more cubes, which sometimes is a blessing, sometimes is a curse both for timing reasons and overall game strategy. And what I like about this is that it just gives you a little bit more choice in terms of how to build your bag, and it gives you a little bit more flexibility in terms of how to satisfy your technology lines with, a, with I think, a minimum level of rules grit. If you're able to internalize and if you're able to impress upon your players that white and black cubes are kind of like gray cubes and that they're not really of a color then everything's fine. And yes, I, I don't want any pedantry about, you know, light spectrums or whatever, or like shades versus colors or what have you. I'm not interested. I don't care. The problem with the expansion is, and, 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 and it's, it's a bit unfortunate, is that it was only released in Europe. I had to import mine from Italy. There are English rules and everything, and the components are independent. It's called Hyperborea Light and Shadow. But basically, if you want one in North America, you have, basically have to pony up 40 bucks. Or... If you can size match the cubes, just buy some white and black cubes and download the rules from the internet, which is honestly what I'd probably recommend, all told. Because that's that's the element of the expansion that I use most often. Most often, It is definitely, you know, if I wanted to compare the Hyperborea expansion with the Orléans expansion, the Orléans expansion, in terms of adding that very well-done solo mode, is probably the better of the two. I'm going to get back to the gray cubes, but I'm going to talk about the black and white cubes and how we, just to emphasize this problem about drawing the last cubes from your bag. So say you've planned it all out, you've drawn the last three cubes from your bag and you think you're going to do a reset, but of those last three cubes you've drawn, one of them is white. It can only go in a rainbow space and you have no choice but to take another cube. 
and now it's gone into your bag, and next turn, now you have cubes back in your bag again, and now you're drawing one cube for your next turn. So, In fairness, that's a problem you made yourself, and more importantly, you basically have a choice there. You either take a turn with three cubes this turn and one cube next turn, or you take a turn with two cubes this turn and do a reset. True, you totally have the option of just not using that white cube right. and, and throwing it to the side. So it's not the end of the world. It's not like the game forces you to do it that way. No, I'm, I'm not saying, I, I didn't want to emphasize that it's a totally bad take thing. Take it back. I just, I just wanted to make sure. Take it back. Our, our listeners. Take it back. No. <laughs> knew what it was going. Let's go back to the gray cubes now. Every time, I'm wondering if this was, if the gray cubes were even necessary. There are eight technologies out on the board that everyone can choose from. Two from each of four decks. And it's refreshed every time someone buys one. Yes. And every technology will come with a gray cube, which is which cannot be used for any of your starting actions. And there are there are a few of the new technologies that you can purchase that can use the gray cubes. So what it is doing is bloating your deck with useless cubes. So I, I, I'm not sure why they put this in, because they've made the technologies as one of the, you know, victory conditions. You know, everyone has to, you know, to, in order to get it, you have to have five of these technologies. And and I'm, I'm really assuming that they don't want you to use your basic technologies or your basic actions for the whole game. Well, but you might. Because it's true, but... You don't have, like, every time that you play Hyperborea, and this is perfectly legitimate, you tend to go heavy into new techs. That's what you like to do, and it's the way you like to pursue things. And that's that's fine, and there are lots of good reasons for doing that. There's also lots of good reasons for not going heavily into new technologies and focusing on other things. And I would say that the logic of the Grey Cubes is as follows. I agree with you that it's not an, an, an integral part of the game. I think you could have redesigned things slightly so that there weren't Grey Cubes involved, and that would have been fine. But if you have a lot of Grey Cubes in your bag, first of all, you're probably not going to have more than four or five, right? Four or five techs is, is, is usually pretty good. And that's probably all you're going to have. So it's not its not like it's going to be so huge. At that point, one would hope that your board position is such that you have lots of ways to supplement your turn with lots of other things to do. It's going to be probably close to the end of the game or certainly past the midpoint. And besides which, if you know you're going to have that many great cubes, you probably want one of your tech purchases at that point to be something that uses great cubes. It's also the case that one of the factions, the orange faction, is very, very good at getting rid of and or using great cubes. So that's one of their their, their, their important advantages. So I think that as, as an extra little bit of grit to the game, it's fine. I don't think it's, it's problematic. So overall, I think I would rate the bag builders. For me, I would put Orleans first, Hyperborea very close second, just because I really like how the map works and how the player interaction is much more relevant in Hyperborea and, you know, knocking people out of a territory and because there's many uses for the territories. They can boost your abilities up, but every time you take an action, one of them could be to move your one of your uh, soldiers into the city, take that special action. When your bag resets, those, those workers get pushed out and you can reuse those cities again. And then, like I said, at the end of the game, uh, depending on what territories there are, they're all worth different amounts of victory points and Altiplano unfortunately was a fairly big disappointment but still not not a terrible game I would reverse the 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 rankings and actually Hyperborea is my favorite bag builder and then actually there's a considerable length until we get to Orléans precisely because it's not it's not a bad game it's just 
there isn't any player interaction. It's more cumbersome in a lot of ways, just in terms of how the different bits interact. I feel like there's a lot of different stuff that's grafted on. You know, you're wandering around on this map to get cheese. You're going up this track to get this weird kind of income that triggers only sometimes. You're going up this other track to do this other thing, and there's all these tracks everywhere. Whereas Hyperborea, despite the fact that you have this other element of this area majority on a map going on, I, f- I personally feel that the systems are a little more tightly integrated. And so... I also just prefer the way that it handles bag building, broadly speaker. It's got a cleaner round structure, and it's uh, it's got a much more deterministic and planning-focused method of dealing with your cubes. So Hyperborea is a game that I've enjoyed ever since I first got it, and I think the expansion only makes it better. I thoroughly recommend it. Orléans Multiplano, I would, you know, I would take a miss. Despite the fact that, as I say, Orléans is, is better thematically than Hyperborea, strangely I have, enough. I have the exactly opposite here. Under yeah. Orleans, I have smoother flow. Really? All of the symbology makes sense. All of the purchasing of your workers makes more sense. All where they to go. To you, sure, you've played it more often. Like When we play Hyperborea, I have to explain to you what the icons mean. And when we play Orléans, you have to explain to me what the icons mean. That's just the way of the world. No. Okay. <laughs> so that is Hyperborea with tags on Orleans and Altiplano. Let us proceed to our topic, which is rating systems. Now, Walker, you seem to have a bug up your butt about rating systems. I just don't understand them. Okay, so what do you... What... Actually, I meant to look on... I, I remember I, I didn't get it, unfortunately, I ran out of time, or I got distracted. I meant to go... Did you look it up at all? The BGG, they have a rating system. Yes. And they, I think somewhere on there, it tells you what each number represents. Yes. What What is it roughly on it? What is it... Is it uh, how good the game is, or... What, what, what okay, is it so, supposed so, to signify? Well, how, how good the game is is by itself pretty vague, right? Because goodness can be defined along any number of different axes. The way that the Board Game Geek rating system works is primarily focused on your willingness to play again. Or, or your, it eager, is. your eagerness to play again. Which is a choice. That's an editorial choice. And I think it's a legitimate one. I think that there are other legitimate choices that could have been made with respect to how to do a rating system. But that, that's how Board Game Geek uh, does it. Which is interesting because that's where I'm going to end up at the end. But anyway, I, I dislike rating systems because it really matters on how many players that you have in front of you or you, how you compare it to other games. Say you have like 10 deck builders in your in your collection, right? You have to rate them. You like one more than the other. So you have to put them in some sort of line. So if, if you rate one a 10... But you like it better than this other one. Is it also a ten, or is it not a ten? And if you go down from there, then obviously you're going to have to rate the one that you dislike the most a one. When it no, 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 just, okay, no, no, no. no. This is, that doesn't follow. I, this is just this is just sort of like an overall example. Obviously, you're not going to do that. But I mean, this is just sort of like no, the, no, you the might theory. No, no, okay. Well, look. sorry, sorry. Let me unpack something. I sure. agree with you. Let's say for the sake of argument, this is of course assuming that you wish to employ a rating system, which many people yes. don't, and that's fine. More power to them. Uh, but lots of geeks like numbers and lots of geeks like taxonomies and lots of geeks like lists, right? And so rating things on Board Game Geek is often a confluence of all these things. And so a lot of a lot of geeks like doing it. I am one of these people. And yes, if you have 10 deck builders in your collection, there's one you like the most. It follows that the one you like the most should probably be rated the highest. I don't agree that it follows that it needs to be rated a 10. No, no, I didn't. No, 10 was just an example. I just mean that if you have 10 in, in your in your collection, mm-hmm. then they all need to be rated somehow. Well, your the, best to your worst, and that sure. only means that the that the top one is going to get bumped to ten, and the lowest no. one is. I'm just. I'm saying. Why, why does that follow? Why would it? Why would your favorite? Let's say. That, let's say that again. You've got ten deck builders in your collection. I 
I've got more than tech, ten deck builders in my collection, but the, the one I like the most is not rated to ten. No, but it's the it's one, rated higher than the other ones. Do you have some that are rated the same? Yes. But aren't there some in the ones that are rated the same that you like slightly more than the others? Probably not. You like them exactly the same. The ones that you've rated at seven, you like them both exactly the same. Okay, so now what you're what you're doing is you're you're pointing out that a rating is necessarily an aggregation. It's an abstraction and an aggregation at the same time. Agreed? Agreed. Right? What you're doing th- is th- this is just one thing that I'm getting to, like that I don't like about rating systems is the fact that. There's so many games that you have when you have large collections like this. That when you have a bunch of games in the same number, that some of them are you're going to like more than the others. So it's only going to be it's it's going to skew the numbers a bit. So is I, what I'm trying I, to get I at. think the perspective that you're adopting is very much like what I said about the board game creating system. It is a legitimate perspective, but it is an editorial choice to view two games that you've rated a seven, and to assert that this necessarily represents that either you like them exactly the same precisely, or in all circumstances, you would necessarily be perfectly indifferent as to playing one versus playing the other, or you would both recommend them perfectly equally to all players, whatever metric you want to choose. To necessarily commit yourself to that view, that since you've rated two games of seven, that one of those things would follow, is a choice. It's not one that I'd make. It is not one that I, I adopt. Because here, here's where I'm coming from with respect to rating systems. I think that they're useful because they're... They're necessarily an abstraction. Obviously, they're granting a, n- a number or sometimes some other kind of thing on a Likert scale or some kind of classification or w- word or however, we- however you want to do it or smiley face. Wh- whatever it is that you're putting on it, an emoticon, what have you, is a sort of an abstraction of a representation of, of a certain degree of enthusiasm or regard you have for the design. Right. So we agree that that's an abstraction. As somebody who was trained as a philosopher, I'm perfectly comfortable with this. I mean, all language is an abstraction after all. It does not follow that it is illegitimate, or and it doesn't follow that we have to necessarily regard the, all abstractions as necessarily the same. It's also the case that it helps for databasing purposes, both on a micro level and on a macro level. On a micro level, it helps me because once you've got a collection of a certain size, or once you've played a certain number of games on BoardGameGeek, it doesn't matter whether you own them or not, you can look at a large list of games and you have some rough sorting mechanism. You should be conscientious of the fact that the sorting mechanism is imperfect and equates the unequal, but it nonetheless gives you a sorting mechanism, right? I've logged thousands of plays on BoardGameGeek. I have thousands of ratings on BoardGameGeek. If somebody asks me about a game I played three years ago, it can be helpful to go onto BoardGameGeek and look at look and see what I thought about it at the time. And the number is a part of that overall picture. Am I making any sense here? You are. Let me just go over some of these other points, though, that might skew No, I want numbers. to talk for another ten minutes without interruption. Well, that's not going to happen. Oh. So, I rate that a three out of ten. Also, how you feel that particular day... The fact that your opinions change over time, the fact that, fact that certain games work with certain groups or certain people differently. Right, but that's not a function. Of, that's not a problem of rating systems. That's a problem of opinions. No, but if you give an, if you give the, a game a, a number like this, you know, I, I give this I give this game a nine. Uh-huh. I play it at any time. I would not play with this particular group, though. Sure. You know what I mean? I'm just I'm not saying that these these are all overall. I'm just saying these are things that slightly skew. This is. Sure. Skew rating systems, right? For me. And the fact that some games work different in different venues. You know what I mean? Like Space Alert, I wouldn't bring Space Alert to a convention or, you know, games that, you know, party games to here or, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. That certain games work for certain groups in certain areas, which will make their, ra- their rating not make sense. 
to a certain extent, I hear where you're coming from, but to a certain extent, I also think that what you're talking about is you, we shouldn't use rating systems because sometimes rating systems are used badly. The person who plays a game once and then rates it and then doesn't revisit that rating even after playing it half a dozen times with different groups in different environments obviously is not using a rating system very well. No system will survive that kind of scrutiny. No system used poorly will survive scrutiny. And that is one of the reasons why, if you are going to use the rating system on BoardGameGeek, you should be willing to re-rate games. You should be willing to revisit your ratings every once in a while, even after not replaying the game. For example, if it's the case that you, you know, have stopped playing Dominion because you've now found other deck builders that you think are just flatly better in all circumstances, you should revisit your rating for Dominion, even though it's not based on subsequent plays of that, it's based on subsequent plays of other games. Do, do users on the database do this conscientiously? No. It's also the case that there's some whack job on BoardGameGeek that rates every game he owns a 10 and every game he doesn't own a 1. So he has thousands of 1 ratings all over the place and it's, it's gumming up the database. That doesn't mean that the rating system is illegitimate, means he's not employing it properly. Because that that's one of the key, again, what I was talking about, both on a micro level and a macro level, all this stuff allows the data to be played with a bit. Do we have to be conscientious of what it means? Absolutely. And I'm not, I, I knew a guy in, in, in Cambridge, and he wanted, he was on this quixotic quest to play every game in the Board Game Geek Top 100, which was impossible because the top 100 was constantly in a state of flux. It was very handy for me because if I wanted to get a game to the table and I knew it was in the top 100 and he hadn't played it yet, I knew I had a, definitely a willing partner, 100%. So that was handy for me. But it, it seemed to me silly because it, it I, I think it falls into what you're talking about. It reifies, it elevates this abstracted data into a level of personal motivation that makes no sense to me. Internalizing the data in that way seems odd. Yeah, I don't want to get it wrong. Like, I think I'm, I have no problem with the board game geek rating system. I'm just talking about me personally, like say during this podcast, other podcasts do it or other, you know, reviews at the end of the review, they give a number, like okay. a, a rating system. And that's, that's mostly what I'm talking about. When you got a huge database, like board game geek, usually no problem because everything, yeah. you know, gets worked out in the wash. But me to sit here and, you know, say, oh, we just reviewed Hyperborea and I gave it, I give it a seven. Like, what does that mean? Like, even if we go to our site, you know, like based on what, you know, who, what, what kind of games your friends like or, you know, how much time you have or how many players you've got. Like, I, I just, using so, a rating system like that just seems... Well, again, that, that's using a rating system badly. If it's the case that somebody hears us saying, just for the sake of argument, you know, you gave Hyperborea a 7 and you give Cockroach Poker, uh, you know, an 8 or something. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's actually accurate but you know you're a fan of cockroach yeah, yeah for sake of argument yeah, yeah it doesn't follow then that what you should do is whip out cockroach poker when you are sitting down with two other heavy strategy gamers right obviously that's true that's patently obvious and if somebody is unwilling to contextualize data at all and they necessarily assume oh well you know eight is better than seven so cockroach poker is just a strictly superior game in all circumstances yeah that person's being dumb and that person would misapply all kinds of information above me on data because you're absolutely right I, I and i have this written down in my notes data is only good when it's aggregated and or curated and you have to do both of those things bgg aggregates the data Obviously, you know, they do all kinds of Bayesian tricks and one could, again, disagree about the editorial choices one makes about different ag methods of aggregation. That's a fascinating study in and of itself. And BoardGameGeek also gives you the tools to curate the data by selecting Geek Buddies. When I look to see how, how well a game is, is regarded, I don't pay any attention to the ranking. 
I don't pay any attention to the average rating. The first thing I do is I, I, I hit Geek Buddy Analyze because I've spent enough time, and granted this is difficult, but it's often worth it, finding people whose tastes are roughly consonant with mine and whose, whose opinions I respect, you know, much like the poor fools who want to listen to us, I don't know what's motivating them. That's bizarre. But, but you have to find the people you trust and then you can use their, their inputs to drive your outputs. And whether they provide that in terms of numbers or whether they, they provide that into yelling at a can for an hour a week is, is fine. But I don't, I don't see that numbers are necessarily illegitimate simply because they can be misabused. I'm not saying illegitimate. I'm just saying I'm probably worried that they'll be misabused. Sure. I mean, we do. I, I do absolutely agree that some people, at least, elevate numbers into a status that they don't deserve. And I, I will. I'll use this actually to segue into one of my pet peeves on board game geeks specifically, or uh, other geeks in general. As I said, geeks love numbers. They love lists. They love categorizing things. And a lot of people love coming up with their own you know, meaning of what all the top 10 means. They look at board game and say, I don't think that 10 ranking system makes sense. Here's what the, the 10 ratings mean to me. Here's what I think they should be. And then they use that for their ratings on board game geek. No, that's not how databases get made. Sure. That's useful for your data. And if you're perfectly happy undermining the legitimacy of the database, just so you can track your own game collection. Fine. I'm not going to tell you that for the sake of aggregating the data properly, you should use Board Game Geek standards. But then there are these people who start engaging in bizarre numerical flights of fancy. Like, I don't think that a 10 scale system makes sense. I only, I'm only, i only going to use a 5 scale system. But then they start resorting to decimals. It's like, oh, I don't want to go 1 to 10. I'm going to go one, 1 to 5. And then they rate something 2.5. I'm like, what are you doing? Do you understand how numbers work? A local friend of ours infamously has a 5 point scale, which a number of other people half-jokingly around here have started using on their own. You want to talk about that for a bit? Yeah, it's it's called the League and Rating System. What? Yes, the League and Rating System. Oh, it has a name? Oh, now I hate it. It does. I was okay with it before, no, no, now I despise it. It is fantastic. Oh, though. dear it, Lord. It goes from negative two to two, right? So a two... Or one to five. Or So a two would be a game that you'd seek out, opportunities to play, you invite people over, you bring it and suggest it, and you ask other people to bring it to events. And then a one would be a game that you'd gladly play if it comes up. You might throw it into your bag when an event, or you suggest it if it's already there, or join happily when someone See, else suggests all, it. Already, I don't mean to cut you off, but already that sounds like an eight to ten on Board Game Geek or a six to seven on Board Game Geek. Well, like I said, I'm I'm upset now that I didn't spend the time to look it up because I thought Board Game Geek was was you know how good a game is or how well the theme is or you know. An overall rating. I didn't not realize it was a playability because this works in because. Right, let me just finish this, and then we'll sure, talk sure. about it. So Zero is a game you don't particularly care for, but you wouldn't object. You wouldn't bring it unless someone else asked. You wouldn't suggest it. A negative one is a game that you try to avoid playing if you can. You bring it to games only if, with reluctance. If someone asks you, expect them to play it without you. You'd never suggest it. And then a negative two is a game that you would refuse to play. I mean, this sounds like... A slightly more crude, and by crude I just mean fewer levels of the board game system, which is fine. the the weird The weird thing is, is that again, these are just a function of editorial choices that people make. Some people think that a zero average is more intuitive than uh, another kind of baseline. We tend to have a decimal bias because we have a base ten number system. If we had a base twelve or a base thirty six number system, like other cultures have had, we'd pro- it would probably look different. But the where I get where I really get frustrated is when people start arguing about different systems being better than others because 
or pretending as though some system is obviously objectively superior. Because again, it's about editorial choices. It's about making the choices you need in order to aggregate and structure your data appropriately. And we can have discussions about which ones are better better or worse. And I'm not saying they're all equally good. What I'm saying is they're all equally a function of editorial choice. And so we can have discussions about superiority, but... The reason I like this system is because it's great in our little bubble. Because we know what games that our group likes. We play together... And we know, you know, generally what everyone likes. So if our group gives, you know, uses the system and gives it a number, then we generally, you know, understand what what it to be. And the other reason, like I said, apparently Board Game Geek does as well, because that's the only real system that I use at the end of the game. I just ask the person, would you play this game again? Sure. Yes or no. And that's usually the only, you know, rating system I use. Sure. Which, again, if you wanted to... You could turn into numbers. Exactly. You could you could have a zero or one rating system, or even a five or ten. I mean, strictly speaking, yeah. you, you call it whatever you like. The other system that we have, though, that that doesn't really fall into this, you accidentally created your own rating system that is now taken hold in our local group, and this is the pie based ranking system. Oh, it's the best one. <laughs> it's pretty good. I like it. I like it because I think a, a system should either be clearly decipherable or completely obscure. I think one or the other. I, I think mid, midway I don't like. Because once you characterized a game favorably as being like blueberry pie, and ever since <laughs> people have been asking you and other people to talk about what, how, you know, what kind of pie a game is like. Now, obviously this creates some problems because there was, in particular, there was some discussion as to whether or not Tortière was good pie or bad pie. Uh, I'm, I'm from French Canada. I have a great deal of affection for Tortière. If you've never had Tortière, it, it, it's great. It's like, oh, it's, it's so good. Um, it's, it's like, it's like the Tigers and Euphrates of pie, just to square the circle. Um, <laughs> there you go. But, uh, so somebody recently characterized a game they didn't particularly enjoy as kind of like being strawberry rhubarb. Now, obviously this is very loaded because some people like strawberry yeah. rhubarb pie. And then there's the whole, there's the but whole. But that's what I mean. That's why yeah. it's so good, right? It is good. Because maybe it'll be a game that they like. It is right? good. It's not even, it's not even just a review of a game. It's also a, 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 an opportunity for culinary discussion and argument. So we should evangelize this. I think everyone should start rating games based on, on on pie levels. You know, don't 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 give it a number on board game. You don't even give a comment on whether you think that the mechanics are solid or anything like that. Say just compare it to the pie. That, 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 that could that, be the official swag rating system. There you okay. There you go. There you go. So what 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 pie is Hyperborea and what pie is Orleans for you then? Uh, uh, Orleans would be a uh, beef and kidney pie. Dear Lord. Yeah, like hearty and full of flavor and brings you <laughs> no, back no, no, to that no, no. old don't, English. Don't characterize oh, it. Yeah, if you, if fair, if you characterize fair. it too yeah, much, that's, you're that's ruining fair. it. And uh, Hyperborea would be, oh, it's like be like a lemon meringue pie. I think. Fair enough. See, th- this, of course, kind of breaks down a little bit for me uh, because I'm one of those people who does not really enjoy pie. <laughs> I like tortière, and there are a couple of other savory pies that I like. But when it comes to sweet pies, I'm not usually – I'm one of the, I'm, a, I'm a cake person. When Tina Fey was given the Mark Twain Prize for Humor, she was she was given a short interview in which she was asked cake or pie, and her response was cake. Obviously, there's been this conspiracy on the part of the pie people to convince us that pie is good, and when that happened, I knew that Tina Fey and I were definitely in the same boat. But anyway, I, I do nonetheless like the pie system. It 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 just pleases me fundamentally. It tickles me in a way that I can't talk about. <laughs> Absolutely. So there we go. So we agree. 
Uh, we, we have slight disagreements about the, the useful of numeracy in, in ranking system and whether or not the Legan rating system is the work of people with too much time on their hands and delusions of grandeur. But we can definitely get behind the pie ranking system, and it is something that we'll be using from now on. Actually, I think our, our feature game reviews are going to be much quicker now because we'll just say the name of the game and just list two pies and we'll be done. And the good part is that we can list it on culinary podcast sites as well, and we can double our listeners. You're right. We should be on the Food Network. Exactly. Oh, this is a great idea. Actually, we should tell people to go on iTunes and rank us by pie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Don't give us star. Don't give us star ratings anywhere. That's right. Uh, just actually, I don't think that you can give us give text descriptions without uh, giving star ratings, though. Uh, ah well. well, we'll have to work on this. We'll have to submit a claim to Apple and to Google so that we can have a, a pie ranking system for podcasts as well. So, thank you so much for joining us. On So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read absolutely everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we possibly can. Thanks again for tuning in. We really appreciate it, and we hope to see you again very soon. See you next week. I give this podcast a rating of chocolate pie you've been listening to so very wrong about games produced by michael walker and edited by mark bigney special thanks goes to what does it eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song fos as our theme you can find them at whatdoesiteat.com you can reach us by email at so very wrong about games at gmail.com or on twitter at so wrong games thanks very much see you next time and always try to be right but remember you are so very wrong